People have tried to describe the Gospel of Mark and um, one of the ways that they've described it is this, that it's a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And what that means is, is that the second half of the book of Mark is all about looking towards the cross, Christ's death on the cross and his rising again. And so the first half is the introduction and setting the scene of that. And the um, climax, if you, if you like to think about the, a story, the Mark's gospel is building to a climax and this is the first climax and then it comes back down and then it builds to an even bigger climax in the second part to come. And the Mark's Gospel um, 8.31, you can even feel the change of tone because 8.31, which is after our, our sections today, it says he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and again rise in three days rise again. And so um, today we're heading towards the climax of, um, of the first part of Mark's Gospel and the exciting climax that it is. Now, you might have noticed in these sermons that we're doing that the number of verses is getting longer and longer. I did a quick count of how many verses I'm to speak on. There's 93. 93 verses. Now, you know, the part of me that says, oh, this will be easy. If I just read the passage, I could sit down and that would take the time. Um, but can I just suggest that if you have a Bible with you or a device with the Bible on, rather than me reading through every verse, that you have it handy there that you can follow and um, I will take some um, summarising as we go through and try and look at some of the key points. So if you want to just see what the structure of our passage from 6.30 to 8.30 is like, um, it's like this. Um, in Mark 6.30 to 44, we read about that amazing miracle where Jesus feeds the 5,000 people. Mark 6:45 to 56, um, a very well-known story when Jesus actually walks on the waters of the Sea of Galilee. And then it diverts to chapter 7, and in chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, um, we see this ongoing debate between Jesus and the Pharisees. And here they're talking about what are the things that you should be able to do and what are the things that you can't do. And it's tied up in an argument about, for them, what is clean and what is unclean. And then we go back to see Jesus doing even more miracles. Um, Jesus casts out demons. He continues to heal the sick. Um, the feeding of the 5,000 was in chapter 6. In chapter 8, Jesus does it again. He feeds the 4,000. Um, and then he talks to the disciples again about the Pharisees and about the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And then we see Jesus continuing, um, showing his divinity through his healing ministry. He heals the blind man at Bethsaida. And then we come to the climax of this passage, which is Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 30. And that's Peter's confession of who Jesus is. For most of us who've been following along in this series, we've seen some themes that have already happened. Um, we've seen continual emphasis on who Jesus really is. Not just a man, not just a teacher, not even a holy man, but indeed the Son of God who came to this earth. And he came not just to heal and not just to do miracles, but he came on a mission. And that was to bring salvation to mankind, to bring forgiveness of sin so that people could connect and be in relationship with God. 
And as Jesus' mission expanded, we saw um, also the opposition expanded. Those people who, if they recognised who Jesus was, was going to make it uncomfortable, inconvenient, costly, threaten their position in society. And so we've seen time after time how the Pharisees and the teachers of the laws have opposed Jesus, being critical and um, arguing with him. And in the midst of this, we've been on a journey with the disciples. The disciples who um, came and followed Jesus, and yet they were in the process of really understanding who he really was. And so the passages that we've looked at, we see this element of faith. Putting your faith in Christ, who is the Son of God. Being prepared to trust in him, to leave behind things so that you can follow him. And this is an ongoing development. And so the gospel continues to stress the importance of putting your faith in Christ, and that applies for us today as well. If I wanted to try and summarise the, um, the big picture um, of those two chapters that we're looking at today, or three chapters that we're looking at today. Um, I could describe it in two types of passages. One is what I would call the faith builders. That is the accounts that we're given that continue to reassure and strengthen our conviction of who Jesus is. When Jesus feeds the 5,000 or the 4,000. When Jesus walked on the water, um, Lord over nature. When he healed the sick, when he cast out the demons. Um, and we see there that the disciples struggle with their faith and continue to have new times where they have to think, who is Jesus? Who is he really? And then there are other examples where we see people like the Gentile woman um, whose daughter was demon-possessed, where she's commended for her great faith. And so the disciples, like us, are on a journey towards faith. But the other side of the story is that there are passages which I call the faith blockers. And here we see that Jesus is actually rebutting and combating those who are trying to say that what Jesus is teaching is wrong. They're being critical and they're trying to sway the people from following Jesus. And so we read about the, um, the clean and the unclean. And you see the, the Pharisees had all these rules. Um, their concept was that they had so many rules that you almost didn't need God. You just had to follow the rules and then God would have to accept you. Um, the Pharisees thought they were the guardians of the law of Moses, but what they were doing was capturing the people um, and keeping them away from God. And so we read about what is clean and unclean. I want to do something that's a little bit um, different maybe. You know, preachers, um, sometimes they look for a good story. Um, if you can't find a good story, you make one up. So if you think this is a corny story, I take all the blame. I made this story up. But I just wanted to tell a story that sort of captured something of the way that the Pharisees and what they stood for had influenced the people's relationship with God. And so, as they say in the movies, no characters or people or places in this story are true. They are all a product of my imagination. If you're worried, I did major in English literature at university, so I am qualified to tell stories. And my favourite storyteller is the Lord Jesus himself, because he is a great storyteller when you read all the parables and stories about him. So the story goes like this. There was this vibrant and healthy church 
in a particular city that were looking for ways to serve the poor and the needy in their city. Some of the ladies in the church, sounds a bit like Brackenridge, but there's no, no comparison here. Um, some of the ladies in the church were excellent cooks. And so they came to the leaders of the church and they had this idea of how they could meet the poor and the needy where they were. And so they suggested to the leaders of the church that they set, it up, set up a chicken diner in the front of the church on where it faced the road so that people in need could come in and enjoy a good meal. And this was accepted by the church. Now, it wasn't that these ladies were just good cooks. They were exceptional cooks. And after a while, not only the needy and the poor were coming to be fed, but people in the town started to hear about the reputation of this marvellous chicken. And so they also came. And some people in the church said, look, we should take advantage of this. And um, these people who are coming who aren't poor and needy, they could pay to buy their chicken and we could use that money to do God's work and whatever. And so they start to set it up on a more formal basis. It became even more popular and the church started to say, now we've got to start to deal properly with our chicken dining business and so they needed to appoint a manager who would run it, they needed to employ people to cook the chicken, they needed to um, do all the things that you would to run a great chicken business. Um, it became even more popular, even the really well-to-do wanted to come and eat chicken but there was a problem and that is that when they came to eat chicken there were some people around in the diner who weren't quite so well-to-do or so well-dressed and some of these people started to feel uncomfortable. And so they said to the church, um, look, we really think you've got a wonderful restaurant but um, you just have to try and deal with some of those needier people. And so the, the leaders had a meeting and they decided that they would just do takeaway for the poor and needy out the back door where nobody would see them and then they could increase their chicken business. And as it became more and more popular, um, they said to the members, now this is a multi-million dollar chicken business. And so rather than just being members of our church, you're now shareholders in the chicken heavenly diner, chicken diner business. And, um, and so they, they started to run it like a business and they got more and more people and more and more money. After a period of time, they realised that they could make a lot more money by opening the chicken business on Sundays when they used to have church services. And so they had together and they had a bit of a meeting and there were some people who objected. We've always had church services on Sunday, but they were the minority. And so the shareholders said, look, we're not going to do church anymore. We need the space for the chicken business. And so we'll use the whole property. And if you don't like it, well, you can go somewhere else and do your thing there as well. And so what happens in that city today is that there is a thriving chicken business but there's no church in the centre of that city. Okay, just made up story. Don't try and work out any subliminal messages or who I'm having a shot at. But I do think that when you think about the Pharisees over a period of time, there is a sense of which they had started being the people who wanted to protect the laws of God but they brought in so many things and so many financial incentives and so many laws to control people 
that they started to block the one thing which was really important to God's heart and that was the relationship with God that people could have. And so I want you, I'm not going to go through the whole passage, it would be good to go through chapter 7, but I want you to think about that passage in terms of that sort of debate. Here is Jesus confronting these people who had turned worship of God away from a relationship and into a religious business. Um, He says in chapter 7, verse 8, you have let go the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Um, Jesus warns his followers that this attitude can infect a whole society and a whole group of people. In In chapter 8, verse 14, he says to the disciples in private, he says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And it's kind of funny because the disciples are still learning who Jesus is. And, and, and if you read that passage, they thought they were in trouble because they didn't have enough bread. But what Jesus was saying was that with the Pharisees, it sounds like it's right and religious. But once it starts like yeast and it affects a small part, it spreads through the whole loaf. And before long, they're heading in a different direction. And they were blocking the faith of people in God. They were becoming a barrier, an impediment to the relationship with God. And look, in the 21st century, we need to pray earnestly that we continue to emphasise our relationship with God and we don't turn our religion into a business or into practices which actually become a blockage between people's relationship with God. But Mark's gospel is more than just dealing with the faith blockers. Um, We see a wonderful account of the way that the climax of Mark's gospel is coming into view, where the true understanding of who Jesus Christ was and the impact that he has on his life. And so the climax in Mark's gospel is in chapter 8, verse 27 to 30. It says this, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea and Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anybody. You see, this statement of faith, the, the, the absolute conviction that Jesus truly was the Messiah, the one sent from God, is the climax of this passage. And so whilst we want to finish at the climax, I think it's helpful to, to think about Peter's journey because Peter, like all of us, are on a faith journey, a journey towards understanding God. And I think it's helpful just to go back and to think what led up to Peter's confession that Jesus Christ truly was the Messiah. Well, one of the very um, big events that happened for him is in Mark chapter 6, verse 47 to 51. And this is the passage which talks about Jesus walking on the water. And it reads like this, Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, And he was alone on land, that's Jesus. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. 
Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind dies down. They were completely amazed. And the Apostle Peter um, has been on this journey with Jesus. He followed and responded to his call to follow him. He had seen the feeding of the 5,000 and the miracles. And Jesus, um, when he walked on the water, Peter was there in the boat. But this journey towards faith, um, one of the beauties we have in the New Testament is that we don't have one gospel, but we have four gospels. And one of the ways to read the Gospels is to actually see how they fill in and they help to enlarge the story. And so between verse 50, um, when Jesus tells them not to be afraid, and verse 51, when he climbs into the boat, if we go to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16, verses 28 to 31, there is an added part of the story which sheds great light on Peter's faith journey. And it goes like this, verse 28. Lord, this is Peter speaking from the boat as Jesus is walking on the water. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And so we get this added sense of Peter's journey towards actually recognising and understanding and accepting who Jesus was. And in this story of Peter walking on the water, we actually see how his faith goes from an understanding to being put into practice, to being put into actions. Um, when you get as old as me, you have some favourite sermons that you, you like to preach. And one of my favourite sermons um, was just simply called Four Steps on How to Walk on Water. I don't know about you, but I thought um, that would be a really interesting experience to have to actually physically walk on water. And so I used to collect photos of um, people and animals who um, could walk on water. Um, But this is not a gimmick. Um, This is an amazing experience. And it's not about the physicality, as exciting as that is. It's actually about the steps of faith in Peter's journey. And so there are four steps of faith that Peter exercises. The first one is this. When Peter sees and Jesus tells him not to be afraid, his first step of faith is to, um, to take step out of the water. And he asks the Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. You see, um, Jesus um, walking there, Peter's journey needed to involve him stepping out and asking Jesus to call him. And this is something that all of us need to do. We can be sitting in church, we can hear about Jesus, we can believe in him in our head, but we actually need to ask him to call us into the journey that he wants us to be. This experience of Peter was pretty exciting um, or scary, whichever way you want to think about it, because this is a threatening storm and he's thinking about coming and stepping out of the boat. I don't think um, Peter asking Jesus to call him is the scariest part of this journey. 
I think step two is, and that is that when Jesus actually calls, we need to respond. Can you imagine that Peter says, Lord, if it's you, call me to come to you. That sounds very noble. And we say, Lord, look, you show us the way and we'll go. And then when we actually hear the voice of God, when Peter hears Jesus and Jesus says to him, come, then Peter has to make a decision, doesn't he? Um, I'm going to try and be careful here, but you imagine if this is the edge of the boat and I'm Peter and I've said, Jesus, if it's you, call me. And he says, come. It's still got to step over the edge of the boat into the raging sea, don't I? Now, that is a step of faith because there's nothing that I can do to control what happens when I step out. The faith is not in my ability to swim or to walk on water. My faith is in Jesus. And the passage tells us that when Jesus said to come, Peter got down out of the boat and he actually walked on the water and came towards Jesus. This wasn't a matter of him falling out of the boat and sinking. He had this amazing experience of walking on the water. I reckon that'd be really cool. I can imagine him telling his grandchildren, you know, I remember the time I was with Jesus. I actually walked for metres on the water. Um, and they'd say, really, Granddad? Are you sure that's not just another one of your stories? Oh, no, it really happened. There is an amazing sense of excitement when we step out of the boat and we respond to God's call. But what happens next is this. We see that um, we have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And we are all, all, all capable of this, that we, we actually um, ask God to call us. We even take a step of faith. And then like Peter, we look around at the waves and the seas and the threats and we become distracted and we take our eyes off of looking at Jesus. And for Peter, the response of that was that he started to sink. He started to be in danger of losing his very life in that wild sea. And so here we see another step in this walk of faith that we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And here's the fourth step. Um, that we have and I've, I've just said this that when you start to sink call for help that's a natural thing isn't it but we read in the passage that um, for, for Peter um, as he started to sink instead of trying to swim back to the boat or to save himself he said Lord save me and um, we see that what happened was immediately Jesus reached out and caught him and he says to him you have a little faith you doubt and they went back into the boat together you see, here is the Peter who has been on this journey with Jesus and he keeps being amazed by who Jesus is. In the boat situation, he actually had to step out in faith and he put his very life on the line. And so now we come to the climax of this passage in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 30. And what we see in this passage, I think we'll put the words up on the screen, I won't read it again. And what we see here is this, that Jesus is walking and talking with his disciples. And he asks them this question. It actually captures the whole sense of the first eight chapters of the book of Mark. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so the disciples were able to describe some of the views and the, the ideas of people. Um, some people say that you are John the Baptist. Um, some think that you're Elijah. Um, some think you're Jeremiah or some other prophet. 
And so today we have the same situation. If we were to go and talk to people in the street, um, talk to people anywhere and say, who do you think Jesus really is? They might say, Jesus was a good man. He was a moral teacher. He was a healer. He was somebody who tried to liberate the poor. But now in this gospel passage and we come to the climax, it gets to the very personal question. Not who do other people think that I am. But who do you think that I am? And I think Mark, when he wrote this gospel, he had in view for generations of people who were seeking to be followers of Jesus, for us to come to that same question, who do you think that Jesus is? And we see that um, Peter then steps out of his confusing bewilderment. Um, I guess all the things that have happened to him in his journey with Jesus flash before his head. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He actually understood who Jesus was. And saying that was then that he was the Lord of him. He was the one for whom to follow. And yet, you know, as I said before, if we look at the other Gospels, we actually see even more um, detail about this passage. And so back to Matthew 16, verse 17 to 19, when, when Peter actually comes to the point of acknowledging who Jesus is, um, Jesus responds this way. He says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'll give you the kingdom, keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, And whatever you lose on earth will be lost in heaven. This verse actually helps us to understand the significance of this confession of faith. Because Jesus says, this is not something that you've worked out on the basis of probability or research. God himself has encountered you and revealed to you this statement of faith. Sometimes people want to talk about this, um, the, the quote that says, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. There's no way that I think that this is about Peter being made the first pope of the church. I don't think it's even saying that Peter was being designated as the most important Christian leader of the time. The rock that the church was going to be built on was not the personality of Peter, It was the confession of faith. It was the realisation of who Jesus was, that he was the Son of God, one to be honoured, to be obeyed, to hand over our life as the Lord of our life. And in the recognition of who Jesus was, Peter was actually, if you like, some commentators will say he was the, the first example of somebody who really got it, who really understood who Jesus was, and that every person who becomes a follower of Jesus also needs to have revealed to them, not just by human knowledge, but by the Spirit of God, the realisation that Jesus Christ is truly God. Sometimes um, we think about church, and we love visitors in this church, and we have lots of people who come and visit us and um, and come and stay, and if you're new at this church, this is great. Um, As somebody who's um, the pastor of pastoral care, 
as good as any church might be, as friendly as any church might be, um, whatever programs that a church might have, it's not going to be enough long-term for people who want to come to church. Unless you actually come down to terms of understanding who Jesus really is and accepting into your life as Lord and Saviour, then church will, at the end of the day, become hard to understand and confused. It's like this band of disciples. What was going to weld them together to move forward was their common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, It wasn't revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And the good news of the gospel is that God wants to reveal himself to every man, every person. And if you've never encountered him as your own Lord and Saviour, no time like the present, he calls and he wants you to become a follower of him. And so we finish this part of Gospel of Mark. Um, The end of the first half, the extended introduction, and we get on to the the main event of the, the passion narrative as it comes. But how are we going to take stock of what we've been on in this journey? It's not just enough to have information about Jesus. Um, We talked about him not being enough to just wanting to say, oh, yes, I can see that. He wants to be the Lord of our life. Not only does he want to be the Lord of our life, he deserves to be the Lord of our life because he is God. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He's the creator of the universe. He is the one who has come so that we might know God, that we might relate to him. And yet he calls us to take out a step of faith. And on this journey of faith, it can be exciting, it can be scary, but deep down we actually need to take the step of faith. We need to call out to God and ask him to call us. We need to, when he calls, we need to respond, even if we're not in charge and control, because that's what a Lord and Saviour is, somebody who is in charge and in control. We need to keep our eyes fixed on him. And when the distractions of the world start to take us away, we need to actually cry out and he will reach down and he will lift us up again. And finally, when we come to understand who Jesus is, we are ready to understand the, the um, life, the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, folks, um, I don't know whether you're disappointed in this or not, but we have finished the introduction. Um, we're really going to get on to the real stuff um, starting um, as soon as next week. But this introduction is important because where we sit and where we are will make the world of difference in understanding God's greatest gift of love to us. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back and we're going to pray and then we're going to sing and respond in worship to our God. And for those of us who might need to be taking steps of faith, um, maybe part of that worship time will be us reflecting on how God wants us to step out of the boat and to walk in faith. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your spirit moved in the hearts and minds of people like Mark. Um, People like Peter, Lord, who was Mark's close friend. Um, Father, to write down so that we might read again with freshness the stories of Jesus. Um, Not just as a human person and not just as a story, but Lord, of an almighty God who wants to reach out and touch the lives and hearts of people. And Father, we thank you that through Jesus we have a way to you. Um, Not like the Pharisees who were putting up blockers, but Father, there is opportunities for us to come and to bow our knee and to follow you. And so, Father, as we move forward, 
And we pray, Lord, that you continue to draw people to your name, to your family in relationship with you, Lord. And for us as a church, as we move forward, that we will keep that the main thing, that we won't get distracted by everything else. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.